they call it uh, intimate justice, which I think is a nice way of phrasing it. This is idea that we all have the same rights to pleasure and well-being. Like that old feminist saying of the personal is political, how we express ourselves sexually with one another really is connected to our access to institutions and how we participate in democracy. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages. Meg Saxby is a social worker, educator, and consultant. Her background is in sexual health education, gender-based violence response, and organizational responses to trauma. In her current practice, she works with individuals, groups, and organizations who want to heal from harm. She lives with her boyfriend, their new baby, and a growing collection of semi-feral backyard cats in the east end of Hamilton, Ontario. I met Meg very serendipitously in an airport when I was reading Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown. And of all the people, she was sitting next to me, asked me what I thought of the book. And soon we were deep into conversation about all things sex and liberation related. Turns out she is a fascinating human. She came to my house the next day after meeting me, a stranger in the airport, and gave this incredible interview. She grew up in South Africa, has a lot of thoughts about the intersection of politics, democracy, and sexual freedom. And I learned so much speaking with her. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. All right. Hello. I'm here with Meg Saxby. And Hello. <laughs> this is a very serendipitous, or I appreciate her use of the term kismet, <laughs> interview because Meg and I met only two days ago. I think it was. Yeah. In the airport, <laughs> Denver airport on the layover. A very long layover. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and in just a span of maybe 10 or 15 minutes, Thank goodness I was advertising my mission in life by reading Adrienne Marie Brown's uh, Pleasure Activism. And Good read. commented on the book, asked the book, and I thought, oh, she's read it. <laughs> okay, step one. Moments later, I find out she is a sex educator and social worker who works um, with companies to help prevent and navigate sexual harassment cases, mm -hmm. as well as with individuals um, recovering from trauma. Yeah, She has a very interesting story and has worked in many realms around sexual activism, including social work, sex stores, um, and everything else in the education system that we will learn about today. So I'm so grateful to you for coming on over, <laughs> taking a break from your family vacation <laughs> to sit with me on this warm autumn day in Santa Fe. And yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> we're at we're at the place where Leanne is staying and it's up in the hills outside of Santa Fe and it's gorgeous. So it's a nice break for me from the, the tourism chaos. Excellent. <laughs> downtown. Welcome yeah. to the authentic. Uh, the authentic. I don't know Santa if Fe. a New Yorker who's lived here for less than a year can offer an authentic <laughs> Santa Fe experience. I'm glad to do it. <laughs> so let's dive right in. Um, I'm curious, could you tell us a little bit about your childhood? I know that you were born in Zimbabwe, I you then moved to yeah. Canada. Um so just tell us a little bit about your upbringing, what kind of family you were raised in. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I had a very, I think in some ways, very unusual childhood in other ways, very normal. Um, my dad is British and my mom is US American and I was born in Zimbabwe. They were both a part of the international solidarity movements against apartheid in South Africa. So they met in Southern Africa in Zambia in the seventies. And my brother and I were born in Zimbabwe in the eighties. Um, our family shifted to Canada just before Nelson Mandela got out of prison. So that would have been, I guess, 1990. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in this like funny household where we're white. So I was like a white, a child of the white activist movement or specifically around Southern Africa and anti-colonial movements. So my parents were great in a lot of ways because of that. They always encouraged lots of critical thinking and lots of, um, you know, taking shit down. <laughs> that, was their, that was their jam. Um, but then, you know, so then we moved to Canada and I lived in this kind of very normal suburb outside of Ottawa, uh, which is the capital, and uh, lived this sort of archetypal middle-class Canadian existence. Um, but my household was, was always, I think, in, in many ways, a, a very progressive one. Uh, and I took that for granted. So from a young age, my parents encouraged me to just follow whatever I was excited about and interested in. Um, and, uh, when I was a teenager and I was starting to become more, uh, I guess, observing the world around me, I was, I, I, I became very drawn to these questions of, uh, specifically I was interested in like stigma because I was trying to understand in retrospect, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but I was trying to understand why some people's lives were, um, some people's lives and some people's practices were considered respectable uh, by the society I was a part of and other people's were not. And the way that I was really interested in at the time was I was interested in drug use. I was interested in all these stories I had heard about the 70s and people dropping acid and smoking pot. But then I, so I understood somehow that these were um, valuable experiences. But then around me, I looked at it and I had, we had these very repressive drug laws and there were uh, people who were openly using substances who were, who were really treated badly uh, by the culture. Um, and, you know, often uh, had to deal with a lot of crap from the legal system. So I was maybe 16 and I became fascinated by this. And I was like, what is this, what is this drug law situation? What are, you know, what are all of these contradictions? Why is our culture so afraid of pleasure? And and why do we need to control people and what they do with their bodies? They're not hurting anyone. And I was very interested in that. And then because of our background in Southern Africa, I was also very interested in HIV and what HIV means. Um, I was trying to understand that. So that's a very long-winded way. <laughs> that's how I got into um, what later became HIV-related activism, which was about safer sex and harm reduction. And that led me in a long path to where we are now. <laughs> but it's it's not at all a detour. In fact, I'm I'm not ready to leave that era of your life yet. Yeah. So um what kind of what form did that kind of activism take? You were yeah. out in the streets, you were what kind of organizations were you part of? Yeah. I was working with a really cool organization which was uh mostly gay men um that was called Bruce House and it was focused on um raise, raising awareness around HIV and also caring for people who had HIV. So I was doing both. I was like, sometimes I was working in uh, the house where we had people staying who were not well and, and were trying to um, get back to uh, a good level of health. So I did that and that was care work. And then I also did, you know, going out to 
concerts and events and fairs and sitting at a table with condoms talking to people about HIV. Um, and that was where I really learned the most. I learned a lot about sex positivity and stigma and talking to people about sex. Um, yeah. And how old were you at that point? I was 16. 16. Yeah. Okay. And were you sexually active at that time? Yeah, I was, but in a very, um, it was kind of a separate, like I, I had a very, I had a, had a boyfriend, I had a, I had a sexual, heterosexual relationship. He was slightly older than me. I think I was 16. He was 17. And we kind of had a very, um, I would say like pretty archetypally mainstream thing. We like dated <laughs> exclusively monogamously. We, you know, had sex in the way that we knew how. So yeah. what was the way that you knew how? Was, was, was the he the one that how? you had sex yes yes he was the first person that i had had the intercourse with the intercourse <laughs> it was the first time uh i was very excited about it i was really fascinated to see how this would go i was lucky in that when he and i started dating i had a great time discovering what i could feel in my body i was really lucky in that way it was really nice like you know i was guessing grade 10 or something and my boyfriend and i would just hang out and spend like hours kissing and going down on each other was great. You know, like when I hear about what other people, how other people learned, I'm like, oh, mine was awkward. Like we were fumbling. We didn't really know what we were doing, but it was fun, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and we basically had a really nice time. Were you able to articulate what you wanted, what you didn't? Did you develop a, mm. a communication between you? No, no. No discourse. No, there the was intercourse. no <laughs> No discourse about the intercourse. Oh. Uh, no, I was like mostly just kind of amazed when something felt really good. I knew to just like keep doing it. But yeah, what happened actually in that sexual relationship, which makes total sense, was like once we kind of got over the excitement of the fact that we could do it, um, it got very boring. <laughs> Unfortunately, wow. at 16, yeah, we had like, we just started kind of doing the same thing again and again, because we didn't know anything else. Right. Mm -hmm. And we hadn't explored with other people or really knew how to explore together. Mm -hmm. So we just kind of plateaued, had a boring plateau. And then we broke up, which was fine. You know, <laughs> so um, can I ask you, did you have a self-pleasure practice at that point? So I developed a self-pleasure practice because I learned how to have orgasms with that boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And once I figured out that I could do it, I learned how to do it myself. And then I was just like, wow, this is so cool. I can just do this. I have a superpower. I, I have a superpower. Right. Yeah. Interesting so though that you learned with him. I know. Uh-huh. I know. I I'm also interested by that. I also love your phrasing of it. Like I learned how to have orgasms yeah. because I think that that is an accurate phrasing that, totally. um, you know, I, I hope, I hope some 16 year olds like snuck onto this podcast, even though it probably needs a over 18 rating. Um, <laughs> it's a thing you have to learn and how understand to do. That. So like, what is that learning curve? Is it a somatic learning curve? I, is it a, how, yeah. how do you learn? I think it is a somatic learning curve. It certainly wasn't conceptual. <laughs> I definitely, I wouldn't have been able to, I knew that women could have orgasms. I didn't know how, or some of the ways of how, like there's lots of ways. Mm -hmm. um, could you rattle some ways? Oh, from, there's so many ways. Advanced. So, yeah. oh man, basically it's like, you can learn to orgasm from whatever gives you pleasure. 
right? So it's like about pathways to that. So I learned to orgasm using my clitoris because that was the, like the easiest, that was the, the low hanging fruit. Um, literally. Literally. <laughs> and then I became like, I think a lot of people do very kind of focused on that pathway. And that was the pathway I knew. Uh, and then luckily, as I got older, I started to explore different pathways and I kind of diversified that. But um, for certainly for that, that time in my life, I just like figured out how to have clitoral orgasms thought that was the coolest thing ever and just kept practicing and got strong at that. But then I didn't have other pathways. So I had to build those. Mm -hmm. So if you're 16, <laughs> it's great to get strong at whatever feels best, but just that, you know, that's not all you can do. You got to diversify your portfolio. It's like investing. It's like, <laughs> it's like your nutrition. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is something I think maybe many adults don't realize. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So, I mean, jumping ahead when I, I worked in a sex shop for years and had a lot of conversations about that with people because they were like, I only have the one kind of orgasm. And now I'm thinking maybe I could have other kinds too. And you totally can. You just have to practice, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, it's just about and explore. Yes, for sure. Explore, practice. Yeah. Um, and again, when we're, when we say practice, like what does practice look like? Is mm -hmm. it about just, is it just, is it the exploration? Is that, that the extent of it? Or what is, what does it mean to practice? Yeah. Orgasm? It's interesting because the way I've been thinking about it recently is pleasure is a practice mm -hmm. and what makes it a practice and not just a spontaneous experience is that if you want to have stamina for pleasure, if you want to have a muscle that lets you do that, a sexual imagination muscle, physical muscles in some cases, um, sometimes what that means is that you have to use those muscles even when you don't really feel like it. Mm. So that's what I mean by practice. So like if you start real small, five minutes of giving yourself pleasure every day, whether that's like with your genitals or anywhere else on your body, that's a practice because mm. you're going to get bored <laughs> in those five minutes. <laughs> and it's the moment of returning and saying, this is still worth it. Mm. That's what builds your strength. Pleasure, stamina. Again, something people don't think about. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm in mm. a, I've been studying at the Mogadow school and that idea of, of it being a muscle that you um, need to strengthen and build mm -hmm. to make yourself a more finely tuned erotic instrument has been really help helpful because yeah. I think otherwise just what you said, oh, you're not in the mood or we're so used to instant gratification. It doesn't come so, right away. And so yeah. then you, it's very easy. I think particularly for women to create a story about, for sure. I'm not erotic. I'm not sensual. Well, I just can't, my body doesn't feel that mm -hmm. much or type or yeah. often. Totally. Totally. And if you think about all the other things we practice, like we practice reading and writing, watching a kid learn a language, it's all practice. Mm -hmm. They're just trying stuff and they don't always feel like it and they get upset and they kick and scream and then they have to figure out how to use their words. And, you know, like it's, it's all the same thing. We're just not, you're right. We're not taught mm -hmm. that pleasure is, there's kind of a discipline to it. There is. And I, it's, it's a, it's an art too. the discipline mm -hmm. part, because I like how you just, you introduce this idea of five minutes a day, right? Yeah. And totally. it's so easy also for us 
you know, for sex to feel something where there is so much pressure already, pressure to perform, pressure, pressure, you know, you're not in the mood, but it's, it's your duty or whatever Mm -hmm. that on Mm -hmm. the one hand, I think so many of us are trying to unlearn. And then the last thing you want is to be your own disciplinarian where pleasure becomes a thing that you need to like crack the whip on. Yeah. Unless that's pleasurable. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Other kind of whip. Um, you know, and so it's sort of walking that line of, Mm. I'm doing this because it's for my own yeah. ultimate pleasure. And yeah. I'm also going to be really gentle with myself about it. Like totally. just showing up, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, which is something I really like also about the Moga Dao practice is that it's a lot of it's not very goal oriented. Mm. It's not, you don't have to succeed. You don't have yeah. to have an orgasm. You don't even have to get off or like enjoy it. it. You just have to like sure. do the muscle and <sighs> breath work exercise. It's your yoga. Yeah. So, yeah, you're so right. We don't need more things that are expected of us. Right. Like, especially women, like women are just doing too much. They should like, <laughs> a friend of mine always used to say, fuck equal pay. Women should get more because they do more. Right. <laughs> but it's true. We don't need more, more stuff on our plate. So the framing of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, like a yoga practice, you're never like, Ugh, fuck off society. Yeah. <laughs> now I got to do my yoga. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. you are. Yeah. And, and all power to you. <laughs> So, okay. So you, you broke up with a boyfriend. I did. <laughs> he was a nice guy. It happens. Shout out to, yeah. what's his name? Shout, you don't out have to, to Adam, shout out to that guy. <laughs> shout out to that guy. Um, and then you went to college. Yeah. What happened next? I took a year off. I worked in a bookstore. I was, I was very radical at that point. I, I, <laughs> I was like 18, 19 and I got really into radical left politics. And so I like lived in a collective house and I worked in a bookstore and I did a lot of activist organizing. Where was that? That was in the UK. Okay. Um, so my folks by that time were living back in Southern Africa and I was in the UK uh, outside of London and Oxford. So that was really cool. I did that for a year, had a lot of fun. Had a series of cute Irish boyfriends. That was great. Um, I like that they they were Irish. They were all Irish. I had a thing. <laughs> you had yeah, to. they were they were lovely. Um, yeah, and then I was like, oh, I guess I should go to university. You know. So then I went to university. And what did you study? <laughs> I studied a bunch of things. So initially, I, I studied uh, economics and women's studies, and then I got bored and I dropped out. Uh, and then I started working, uh, at a farm and was really excited about food security. So after I'd done that for a year, I was like, I should go back to university. And I was trying to find a way to do that. That would be fun and interesting. Cause I kind of thought it was boring. Um, so then I found this really cool program where I could go to Cuba and study the revolution. <laughs> So I did that because <laughs> they did a lot of cool food security stuff in Cuba. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And then I work in the dual citizenship there, work in the dual oh. citizenship. There were some Americans, mm. but it was hard for them to get in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then when I was finished that, um, I was like, oh, I should finish this degree, but I'm like kind of burnt out and not that excited about it. So I went to the East coast of Canada where I worked as a kayaking guide and finished my degree on the side. And then I finished with a degree in history and I worked as a kayaking guide. So I made my way through in Nova Scotia. Yeah. Education is tough. Formal education is tough. I I was, I was really young and excited and I didn't want to be stuck in a classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
glad I got through it. But how, what was the time span for you to finish your degree? I think it took me six years. Mm. I mean, what a better way to do it. For sure, man. I'm so glad I did it because I wouldn't ever do it now. The, the education? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but if you're going to do it. No, it's to, useful. To take a gap year, yeah. to draw it out, to totally. recognize how much the education in the world yeah. is so much more. Yeah, totally. And then you also accrue, accrue less debt. <laughs> right. Um, also, also relevant. Yeah. And so were you doing, um, were you involved in activist groups in your university or was most of it? I was, but it wasn't sex related. Like it wasn't related to HIV. It mm -hmm. was more uh, like, yeah, food justice stuff. And I worked in like ecological, environmental mm -hmm. movements. Yeah. In hindsight, how might you connect that, the type of work that you were doing with yeah. your sexual activism? In hindsight, what I would say is it's all about like human dignity, mm. right? And mm. treating ourselves better and treating each other better. And whether we're doing that, call it the workplace and we're talking about like healthier relationships in workplaces or we're talking about healthier, intimate sexual relationships or we're talking about not devastating the environment around us. It's all the same. Um, I think I was drawn to big political questions and those were usually framed outside of the sexual realm. So I, that's where I went. Mm -hmm. um, but I honestly, I think it's pretty hard to be an empowered citizen in one realm without being an empowered citizen in another realm, right? I don't think we're very good at keeping things separate. So um, I think they're all connected. Yeah, totally. You had mentioned in our brief former conver other conversation about sexual citizenship as a concept. Mm, yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit? There's all these cool phrases I learned when I was doing some work for Action Canada Sexual Health and Rights. We were we were looking at sex ed curricula um, around the world and like what seems to work and what's hard and what doesn't work. And um, so through that, I learned about uh, in Scandinavia, they call it uh, intimate justice, mm. which I think is a nice way of phrasing it. This is idea that um, we all have the same rights to pleasure and well-being um, and that intimate injustice or intimate oppression uh, gets in the way of our ability to like be ourselves in the world. And then in Latin America, uh, they were talking and, and there's a project in Colombia specifically on sexual citizenship. So it's the idea that how we express ourselves sexually with one another really is connected to our access to institutions and how we participate in democracy. Mm. So that was cool for me to find language for that, that other very smart people had come up with. Yeah, that's an amazing concept <laughs> yeah. and really central to the focus of this podcast. Can mm -hmm. you talk, you know, for someone listening who maybe is like, what, what, what? what does yeah. my sex life have to do with my totally politics? Yeah. Everything. Everything. It's the, like that old feminist saying of the personal is political, um, that what we are taught that we deserve, uh, in our sexual lives, uh, our sexual lives, we, we learn in this very, um, early way, what we're allowed to have, what we're not allowed to have, how much pleasure is okay, how much is too much. Um, and then we practice that and we repeat that with our partners or with ourselves. And so the idea is if you can make a change there, um, that's a really fundamental and powerful place to make a change. Mm. And then you, that will ripple out, right? 
So if I decide that I know I actually am worthy of pleasure and I have a right to pleasure in my sexual life, um, that starts to empower me in a different way in my relationship to, say, my healthcare providers or my school system or the people I elect into power. I start to believe that I deserve more there too. And vice versa. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, so we'll back up a little bit. So tell us, mm-hmm. I, I believe the first time that you ended up working explicitly in a sex shop or around yeah. sexual education was in Berlin. I was in Berlin. I was like mid twenties and this wonderful thing happened where I had uh, a year of unemployment benefits <laughs> which was pro amazing. Tip, pro tip. Oh man, it was so good for me. Anyway, I'd been working and I got laid off and I had this unemployment benefit. So I was like, well, you know, now that I have money coming in, like what would I like to do? And a friend of mine was opening a feminist sex shop. It's called Other Nature. It's still in Berlin and Kreuzberg. And she needed help. So I was like, oh, I'll help you. Like that sounds fascinating. I think that sounds great. So I did that. And that was amazing. And it just basically turned into this great job where I would talk to people about pleasure and desire and sexuality and consent and all these interesting conversations that people would have when they were looking at sex toys mm. for books or porn or looking for resources and information. It was great. Yeah. That's a fascinating role to play. Yes. For yeah. people. Yeah. It's very cool. You, you play many roles. Mm-hmm. You're kind of a therapist sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're just like straight up an information person. You're just giving people pamphlets. <laughs> um, you're system navigating. You're helping people find a doctor who's not going to be transphobic or a massage therapist who can work with pelvic floor issues. Mm-hmm. You know, you become like a hub of information. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the time what you're doing is you're just holding space. And you're just making it possible for people to come and ask questions or not even always ask questions, just be in a space where it's like, okay to be a being who is sexual and curious. Mm. We need more spaces like that. Oh, I know. (laughs) We do. Feminist sex shops are great. And I take my hat off to everyone who works in them. So what makes a sex shop feminist? I would say a feminist sex shop is a a sex shop that... um, affirms sex as a healthy, positive force in people's lives. Something that can, it's not just healthy. It's like, um, it builds your health. Like it's nourishing. Um, and so it's a space where dialogue is encouraged. Asking questions is encouraged. Being curious is encouraged. It's also a space where, you know, we, um, protect it. And uh, so people, when they come in, they know that they're not going to be shamed for being there. They're not going to be shamed for asking a question. They're not going to be kicked out for whatever their orientation is. Um, and that as long as the boundaries of consent are all respected, um, that that everyone can be there, which is a challenging thing to do. It's a hard thing to hold. I don't think in our culture, we're not very good around boundaries, around sex. And so if you have an open space, people sometimes struggle how to engage with that. Mm. You know, they don't always know where the lines are. So you have to do a lot of modeling of healthy, healthy consent. What does it mean to cross a boundary in a sex shop? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I would often have people who thought that we were sex workers 
And we weren't. We had we had listings of sex workers because I'm like very pro sex work. I think it's really important. Um, but that just wasn't what we were doing. Um, we didn't have the licensing to be doing that. And we also just that's not our skill set. Um, so sometimes you'd have to defuse conversations because people often they hadn't been into a space that was about sex that wasn't where you buy sex. Right. So that was, you know, that was always a conversation. Like, how do you kind of explain that in a way that's not saying, hey, you're wrong, but rather this is just not what we do, you know? Um, and then the other one, which was challenging was sometimes people, they have a lot they need to talk about and they don't have a place to go. And so they end up sharing a lot with you and you're like, I actually have to clean the bathroom right now. <laughs> Close. <laughs> But like, I can't cut you off because you clearly need to talk about this. So that was also, that was a tricky one too. Yeah. So you're in your <laughs> mid twenties now yeah, at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So how has, how has your, your um, sexual activism yeah. impacted your personal sex life totally. or vice versa? Last we left off, you were, you know, ditching the high school guy. Ditching the high school boyfriend. Self-pleasuring it up as a discipline. Exactly. And the string of lovely boyfriends. And so Irish men, right? Irish men. That was a theme. There was, um, yeah. So the, actually I would say it took a long time for those threads to come together. In my mid twenties in Berlin, I was working in this sex shop and learning a great deal. But my partner at the time, we were still different, different partner, lovely guy, wonderful, wonderful guy. Good, good. We're still good friends. Um, we were still in that same loop of not knowing how to have good sex together. Once we got over the fact that we could have sex together, which was always this exciting time, we just got caught in this like really boring loop, which in my, from my perspective was, I didn't really know how to talk about what I wanted. I also didn't really know how to, yeah, I just couldn't, I didn't know what I wanted or I knew what I wanted. Maybe I couldn't quite get myself comfortable saying it. Um, so we had a wonderful friendship basically, but we couldn't, we couldn't keep the sex alive. So it died again, you know? So what do you think is at work there that you yeah. can in your outer life? Cause I, I think know. it's true of so many women, Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. I was directing major plays and productions when I was in my early mid twenties, yeah. could tell anyone what to do on stage, but yeah. mute in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. I know lawyers and, you know, Stanford MBAs, et cetera, have had these really intimate conversations with where it's like, I don't know, I know how to show up and like be a boss. Throw it down. <laughs> you're in this sex shop having these, you're I know. the most honest of conversations. So totally. like what, yeah, what was where is the, the disconnect for it? So for me, what it was, was I never, it was only in my later twenties. So like I was kind of 28, I would say when this happened, I finally felt safe enough in my own body. Like I felt secure and confident that I knew where my boundaries were and I knew I could defend them, that I felt safe enough to be really explorative sexually. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I really only slept with men I really knew. And that's fine. Like it's, it's great to sleep with people, you know, but I also learned a lot by sleeping with people I didn't know very well. Mm. And I couldn't do that until I felt really confident and secure. And for me, that took till I made late twenties. But even when in, in your, um, encounters with the men that you knew. Yeah. Yeah. Something around, I, I yeah, it's a good question. I, I couldn't, I, I think I still had a lot of shame. Mm. And that was very embodied. It wasn't 
cognitive. So I would never have told another person they should be ashamed, but I had shame. And I think also another piece was I still carried a lot of the idea that a partner should just know what you want. Um, and so when they didn't know what I wanted, I really resented them mm. and I was really mad. And that will shut your system down like nothing else. Like resentment <laughs> will just not make you want to fuck someone. Totally. So I think I was actually boiling over with resentment <laughs> in totally. like a very quiet way. Uh, two wonderful guys who like it wasn't their fault at all. Like, Do you think you... they were having good sex? I don't think so. I don't think any of us were. I, just, I mean, God, maybe. I don't think they were. So I've spoken to the one who I was with in Berlin because we're still friends. And, and we've talked about it. And he's like, you know. I respect him for saying this hard thing to say. He's like, you know, I look back on our relationship and I'm like, why was I so scared to talk to you? Hmm. Why was I so scared to ask, what are you feeling? He's like, I knew something was wrong, but I just couldn't quite get it together to have those conversations, nor could I. Mm -hmm. So we just couldn't, couldn't quite get up the cojones to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, we were scared. Well, and it, it harkens back to what you were saying about the personal and the political, right? Yeah. Because the political requires that we have these very challenging conversations about very yeah. intimate things totally. and very honestly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in some ways we can get all conspiracy theorists about it, right? Because a sexually repressed populace is going to be a populace that feels disempowered in totally. terms of confronting. Hard stuff. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I definitely just couldn't quite, I didn't have the skills, you know? So you've since worked in a lot of educational spheres. Yeah. What, you yeah. know, I'd love to hear about what the conversation currently is around sexual education, but yeah. I'd also love to hear what you think it should be. Oh, like man. what kind of education <laughs> do you wish yeah. that you had received? Yeah. And let stretch your imagination because I'm sure it barely exists if yeah. at all on this planet. But <laughs> oh, let's gosh. bring it. Let's, yeah, that's the work we're doing. So, like, what would have prepared you? Yeah, given you the tools. At what age? So super early on. So most of the research on this is super interesting, which shows that like early, 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 like ages four to six, kids really need tools for talking about boundaries mm -hmm. and not just talking about boundaries, but also feeling their boundaries and then kind of putting a word to it. So like, I, I would love to see a world where kids are encouraged to say, you know, I, I want to sit here and not here because it feels better. Right. Mm -hmm. Like little things, little kind of gestures of autonomy. I don't want to eat that, but I'd rather eat this. I mean, know? my four-year-old nephew seems to be very, uh, <laughs> yeah opinionated and empowered yeah. but I like how you say it because it feels better yeah. where it's not just about yeah the defiance yes right I mean <laughs> what two-year-olds learn the word no and it's their favorite no so For there sure. is some of that boundary yeah. setting yeah but that's also yeah pleasure oriented and maybe non-combative yeah like I'd love to see kids encouraged to orient towards pleasure mm -hmm. and given given tools for talking about that you know and and adults who can handle it right I mean that's the other thing right? Like kids do, they are pleasure seeking little creatures and, um, adults get f afraid of that. Adults are really afraid of that. And so they shut that down in a lot of unhealthy ways. Mm -hmm. So I would love to see sex education that begins way earlier with just like putting language to, well, my instincts are telling me this, mm -hmm. right? My instincts tell me I don't like that person. 
um, this is what I'm doing about it. My instincts tell me I really like this feeling and this is what I'm doing about it. So like early building blocks, right? And then in my experience with kids a little bit older than that, you can do a lot with storytelling and theater and arts to help them explore what is a boy, what is a girl, what do we think these things are, what do they teach us, so kids can really deconstruct a lot and express themselves. And question gender. Yeah, exactly. And just learn learn that it's just a language mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to imprison them. You know, and it's like just someone had an idea. <laughs> um, again, that's not even formal sex ed, but that's just literacy, right? Like cultural literacy. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, once we get into the area of, of helping kids recognize their body and map their body and name their body and talk about what feels good and what doesn't feel good and how do they want to talk about their bodies and then helping them learn to solve conflict and listen to one another. So none of this is actually that explicit, but I think that's the foundation. Mm -hmm. um, and then once they're asking questions explicitly, then they should be getting all the answers that they can understand, you know, and they'll tell you. Like <laughs> kids are amazing that way. Like they might ask a question and if you're trying to kind of explain it to them in too much depth, they'll just turn off, mm -hmm. you know, like they're just like whatever you're going to your adult space and, right. you know. I mean, I wonder about explicit sex education mm -hmm, at a young age mm -hmm, as well, right? Because mm -hmm. it's part of when we're teaching kids about their genitals. Like, yeah. why are we, they, they produce waste, but yeah. twid like twiddling our thumbs, there's no mention of totally. what else they can do and the pleasure around that. Yeah. And so, and then of course for them. kids kind of maybe discover it on their own and then they're yeah. like either shamed for it or just don't know. And so like, what would it mean totally. even for young kids and not to make it this big we're corrupting them thing, mm -hmm. right? But rather this is what your body can do. Yeah. And that's something that you can go explore. It's something you explore in private. It's something that you yeah. don't let other people explore with you until you're much totally. later. Like Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I think that's it, right? It's like giving them a full picture of mm -hmm. what their bodies are capable of, which is not just like elimination <laughs> and <Right>. reproduction, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, I think, I think a lot of the reason adults are afraid of it is it opens up a whole bunch of conversations that we are afraid to have. In our own adult in our lives. Own lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I, 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 I really think if kids have a healthy and safe, secure attachment with their caregivers, they can ask questions. They can tell you if something's happening where they're not okay or they're uncomfortable. That's what adults should be focusing on, not controlling their access to information. Mm -hmm. You know, like if your kid has a couple of really solid adults there that they can talk to, they're miles ahead. Right. You know, sure. and they can bring information to those adults and say, hey, I don't understand this or this made me feel weird. And that's that is actually protective as opposed to trying to like control information. So give us a survey of some of the sex education spaces or conversations that you've been part of. Yeah. So, I mean, I worked on formal curriculum because we were trying to uh, we were trying to basically <laughs> get a an up-to-date curriculum passed in Ontario. We eventually did get it passed and then it was rescinded, unfortunately, by a conservative government who wow. then put it back in. <laughs> it was like this big drama. <laughs> what, what did they object to? Oh, we put in a bunch of great shit that like all the research all over the world says should be in there about consent, about media literacy, about uh, sexting and like online sexuality, which is like a part of people's lives. Mm. Uh, also about gender. 
-hmm. about trans identities and gender non-conforming people. Uh, we also put in information about things like anal sex, mm -hmm. you know, like stuff that's part of people's practices and part of lives. But um, and we were just updating to the standards, right? Like if you look internationally at what the UN and the WHO have set as standards for HIV prevention, mm -hmm. this stuff is in there, right? It wasn't it wasn't radical. What, um, what is this? What are the standards? So there is a great uh, text called It's All One Curriculum. Um, which is a great resource for anyone who's interested in sex ed. And it goes year by year, what should be in a curriculum that is about HIV prevention and gender justice. And it's called, it's all one curriculum because it was decided that like, it doesn't make sense to talk about safer sex in isolation. We have to give kids tools to talk about power and relationships and gender. Wow. And that's what works. So yeah, we were working on trying to update <laughs> the Ontario curriculum. Out of that work came a great text, which if anyone is interested, is called Beyond the Basics. Mm. And it's a great text for anyone who's an educator on just exercises that you can do with your kids on like talking about gender, talking about body image, talking about media. Um, so that's worth checking out. That came out of that work. So what are, what are the conversations around media literacy in relation to sexuality? Yeah. So the biggest one is about porn. Um, because what the research shows is that, um, kids, uh, young people, um, can understand that pornography is not real, <laughs> but they need a conversation. Hmm. Right. So, um, if you, if you hide porn from kids or pretend that it's not reaching them, you lose the opportunity for that conversation. Mm -hmm. But if you take a media literacy approach and you say, okay, well, when kids are seeing war on television, we talk to them about what that is, right? Mm -hmm. And if kids are seeing porn, we just need to talk to them about what that is, right? Those people are paid. <laughs> They're actors. <laughs> right. That's been storyboarded. <laughs> Some people like that. Some people don't. Like, Again, very simple conversation, just giving them some tools because otherwise they are seeing it and they have no place to talk about it. And then, you know, they probably end up assuming things that are uh, not helpful for them mm -hmm. as they're growing up. I'm curious about your thoughts on pornography and yeah. also if you've encountered any, yeah. um, you know, unique, unusual, yeah. other lens, other gaze. We used to sell, so at Other Nature and then at the sex shop I worked in after in Toronto, which was called Comes You Are, we sold a lot of porn. Uh, we actually also rented porn. Um, and so we learned a lot through that. We were always trying to stay up to date on women women porn makers as well as, as trans porn makers. It's really, it's challenging because I think it can be incredibly liberating and positive and healthy and good. And it's also part of the film industry. <laughs> and it's also something that you can, it's really hard to make money on right now because there's so much online free porn. And so that really drives the standards down. So I think porn is great. I would encourage people to check out the work of Erica Lust, L-U-S-T. She's based in Barcelona. Um, Jiz Lee, who is American, another great uh, producer, I believe, as well as director and actor. Um, Shine Louise Houston. There's some fantastic producers and directors um, 
so it's definitely an area that's like important, but um, I will also be the first to say it's really hard to produce ethical porn. Ethical porn. Ethical porn. Uh-huh. Yeah. Based on what you're paying. Based on what you're paying your actors, uh, based on what the market will pay. Hmm. Right. So uh, if you're in a niche where people are like interested in paying good money <laughs> to ensure that everyone is being treated well, um, and that there's more diversity of representation of like body types, for example, as well as racial representation, gender representation. Um, there is a small sect of, of customers who will do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also a lot of people who won't. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're talking about demand. Demand. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the language. Exactly. So it's kind of like if you want like fair trade, <laughs> your fair trade coffee, right? Your fair trade high quality porn is a small section of a pretty unethical industry. industry. Um, what, are, what are the kind of standard violations that? Yeah. Um, you get people who are not on healthy contracts, not on proper contracts. So they're not getting paid properly. Um, you get situations where um, directors are not necessarily ethical in terms of how they're storyboarding. And then people who are in more precarious working conditions are pushed into acts that maybe they wouldn't otherwise consent to. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you get distribution, like folks who do a certain kind of work and they want it to be, they want there to be a bar of money to get to that kind of work. And then that gets distributed unethically and they lose that income. Um, yeah, all the standard like labor bullshit. Mm. Unethical <laughs> distribution. You're not just talking about accessibility. You're talking about in what way do they lose the income? There's So there's a couple of big, um, this is a really interesting topic actually. And there's a couple of people I can refer you to who know more about it than me. But there's a couple of big production houses that are online that basically act as clearing houses. And so they can buy a movie that... Um, you know, let's say you and I make a movie and uh, we own the rights to it. Let's do it. Let's make a movie. And then some giant production house buys that movie and they just make it freely available and we don't have the money to sue them. Got it. Right? Right. Has has there been any sort of crowdfunding around ethical pornography? There is. I'm not super connected to it anymore, but there were a few, Mm -hmm. like there were a few efforts in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that's a great approach. Yeah. You know, but I think it's also just like, it's tough to make a living mm. in, you know, so people usually have to have something else on the go, you know? How about, how, what do you think? This is more of a, an artistic inquiry, mm. but how, how do you think that, um, body types, yeah. et cetera, that maybe yeah. defy whatever conventional pornographic beauty standards, like totally. how can you feature them without fetishizing them? Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's a good question. I mean, I would, I would always defer to actor, actor, uh, direction in a way, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like how does a person feel honored and respected in that process? Um, so that would be the question I would ask, you know, to your, to your models, to your actors, um, cause I think that's a danger, right? Like if there's like fetishization, which is not respectful, right. Right. Um, and you don't want to reproduce that. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot you can do technically in terms of like angles and lighting and stuff like that too, that I don't really know anything about. Right. Um, but I think fundamentally also probably storylines that put those people in positions of power, power. Yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. And what do you think? 
It's a good question. Um, yeah, I think those are great responses to it. Yeah. Um, it's something I'm just increasingly thinking about as an artist I and bet. director and, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about wanting to create erotic art and erotic performance art and make that really inclusive and yeah. also recognize um, my position, you know, as a white cis woman. Totally. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing conversation and yeah. I think it probably just has a lot to do with your collaborators and the nature of the collaboration, yeah. making it really non-hierarchical yeah. and yeah. Really deferring and yeah. Um, yeah. healthy partnerships. Sure there's a lot of vision and voices included in the creation. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And then making sure people have some sort of say in how that work is used, mm-hmm. right? Like they've got access to the, the means of production right. right, and how that's distributed. Um, but I think it's super important. We used to have, I would, I used to have a lot of clients who would come in who would be super excited if they could see like trans made porn featuring trans people. That mm-hmm. was really exciting. And mm-hmm. that was really important for them, like trans people themselves. Um, cause it's like representation, right? Totally. So it's a really solid battle. <laughs> Good one to work on. So talk a little bit about Come As You Are, the sex shop that you worked in as the educational director. Yeah. So then I then I moved after I was in Berlin for five years. I moved to Toronto, which is in Canada. Uh, and I worked for Come As You Are Cooperative, which is the world's, at that point at least, the world's only cooperatively owned sex shop. So that was really cool. Uh, so we made this kind of effort towards an anti-hierarchical, anti-capitalist sex shop. What would that look like? What would that mean? Mm-hmm. So we sold products without much of a markup. So that was a really clear thing for our consumers, something that they noticed. We also were like really able to be very honest, <laughs> which was really nice. So when there were products that were shitty, we were able to be like, this is shitty. Or when there was, uh, you know, books and movies coming out that we thought were amazing, we could just put those on display, even though they didn't make any money. So we were like, we were able to um, do a lot of cool stuff that we wouldn't have been able to do if we were accountable to shareholders or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So then I was the education person. Um, and what that meant was <laughs> sometimes putting in my little suitcase, the suitcase full of dildos and just going around Toronto and making presentations mm-hmm. on safer sex, on pleasure, on consent, on in gender. Venues. Oh, all the, all over the place. Where did I go? Community health centers, sometimes um, youth stuff like youth drop-ins, youth workers uh, would often have us in. Sometimes we'd be in spaces that were for folks involved in the sex trade. Often we'd be pulled in because we were, uh, Comes Your was majority trans owned. And so we were seen as a, a area of expertise on trans identity. Um, and so I would often be asked to come in and, and talk to teachers, for example, about uh, what is trans and how to handle trans students <laughs> and how to not be harmful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we did a lot of that work too. Um, increasingly that's being done by the education board itself, which it should be. So I'm happy to see that. But at that point, it just, that knowledge wasn't, wasn't yet accessible to mainstream institutions. Mm-hmm. So um, we were doing a lot of that too. Amazing. Yeah, it was cool. It and was then great. you had to read everything that you uh, <laughs> had, that yeah. you featured. <laughs> we had this like 
like sort of bananas cooperative idea that we should like read everything in the store. Mm -hmm. We also tried everything. Not all of us tried everything, but every time we would get like new oh, nice. new toys, we'd have a staff meeting and we'd be like, who wants to try this? Who wants to try this? And uh -huh. then you have to write a review. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty cool too. And we also, my God, my, my, um, my colleague was the one who did this. God bless him. Um, watched all the porn <laughs> to make sure there wasn't like, I don't know, like someone yells out some racist thing at some point. You right. know what I mean? Like, because mm -hmm. you, you just, you can't necessarily trust everything that's written on the back. Right. That's very DVD. responsible. Yeah. So I would say, like, he, he took one for the team. He took one for the team. He was just like, I'm so sick of watching straight people have sex. But <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you, but yeah, so we, we did. So I read a lot. I read a lot, a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and so what strikes you as, as really interesting or provocative writing on sex versus not and yeah versus not so more problematic or just i don't know give us a little lit review <laughs> yeah i love anthologies i think anthologies are amazing because i think with sex your experience is just not the same as anyone else's right. and what often happens with that diversity is people somehow assume it's weird, like, because it is so diverse, people somehow are like, well, it wasn't that way for me, therefore it doesn't exist. But the opposite should be what we do, which is like, wasn't that way for me? Wonder how it is for someone else, right? right? So um, I would say any anthology you can find where people are writing about their sexual lives is totally worth reading. Um, yes Means Yes, uh, Visions of Female Sexual Power and a World Without Rape is a great anthology. That's a good one. Love it. Start with. There's another great one called Jane Sexes It Up, Feminists Write About Sex. Um, other great ones. Oh, there's, I mean, this is an anthology, but I love it anyway. This great psychotherapist out of San Francisco called Jack Morin. Uh, he wrote a book called The Erotic Mind. Hmm. He is amazing. That is a great book. That's just worth reading. Great. It's all about understanding fantasy. Um yeah. And then, gosh, we just wrote, we just read everything. Uh, Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are. Great book. Love it. Um, good Vibrations Guide to Sex. It's like a really good basic one. Cool. Um, we'll feature all of these on our resources yeah, page. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Get them all. Get them all. Mm -hmm. um, there's a really lovely book called Transitions of the Heart. Mothers write about their children's transition. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. Uh, it was a really nice, I, I would often have confused parents who would come into the store and be like, my kid is trans. What do I do? Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, read the book <laughs> and it will calm you down. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then you were, you were working with education yeah. institutions at that point as well. Yeah. I was going into, uh, sometimes universities, sometimes residences at colleges, uh, a couple of times fraternities. That was pretty interesting. Ooh, tell me about that. We had frats reach out and they were like, we think we should offer something on sex and sexuality. And I was always like, yeah, you should. That's great. Oh my God, a you know, I know. <laughs> so I was like, I love it. Rad. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. I will come and do that, you know? And so I'd go and have these like hilarious conversations with like frat boys about pleasure and consent. And it was really, it was really good for me too. Cause like I had my own biases and assumptions about what right. they thought and wanted and knew. And I had this hilarious one where I remember I did this like in-depth, like two hour thing. 
And then at the end of it, this young guy put his hand up and he was like, so lady, what you're just saying is that if we do this consent thing, everything's going to be better and everyone's going to have a better time. And I was like, yes. Oh my God, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> like, I just, it's like, I, was, I felt like I'd probably gotten in the way more than I needed to. And he just like was like, so. <laughs> but it took him two hours to get it. So I Yeah, but he you got know, there and I was like, great. Super. It probably needed everything yes. in there. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I mean, they should be. They I mean, that be kind that. of workshop should just be standard and mandatory, at least on universities, if not. Absolutely. High yeah. Oh my gosh. Totally. Mm -hmm. Because also because, like, you know, I always felt like w the way we tried to dress it up is make it, um, as engaging for people as possible. So we used to run on like one run on how to negotiate threesomes. Mm. That was very popular, mm. which it's just consent work. Right. That's all it is. It's but you just have to like, you know, it's basically about like helping people feel comfortable and safe and like it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. But we always got a lot more people who would come to that than like something about like um sexual assault prevention. Mm -hmm. Right? Um so yeah, like it was interesting. Yeah, they should get it. They should all get it automatically. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I had an interesting experience recently where um I was speaking to someone I'm like, is this, is this the podcast to tell this story? Yeah. I feel like I'm about to reference the story like uh, often, mm. but, um, was at Burning Man mm -hmm. and I was at, you know, this, at this camp with some friends. It was a very squishy, cuddly camp. Yeah. And, um, this guy had walked me. I, I couldn't find my friend's yurt. This is all like, <laughs> I'm like painting this, I'm like hearing myself things, <laughs> things you say, um, only at Burning Man. Um, the point is this guy had walked me back and at some mm. point he asked, it's been, we've like hanging out for 15 minutes. He's like, there's so much there's a lot of emphasis on consent here. Like what's with all the consent talk? Yeah, Are women being yeah. raped? Like, is there yeah. a lot of assault happening at this camp that makes mm -hmm. the consent conversation so necessary? Mm -hmm. And it just showed this very common, I yeah. think, misconception that's like, oh, consent is only about preventing totally. blatant sexual assault. Totally. Right? When totally. it's actually, <laughs> it's this incredibly nuanced um, conversation on yeah. so many levels. Oh and, you know, I sort of explained yeah. Some of that and also you know that in this space in order for it to be this very cuddly camp people are using substances yeah. like for that to continue to feel safe and good as yeah. an exploratory space there needs to be rigorous understandings about consent 100%. and how to have the conversation totally a few minutes later we um get out of the yurt <laughs> i was like or we were out of the yurt i'm like oh i'm gonna go back in and get my water and he says oh go for it and he smacks my ass yeah. And I turned yeah. and I said that right there. That's yeah. It is yeah. a case in point of why consent is important. And like, to be fair, my friend, we were in a yurt. His shirt was off. My friend was buffing him. Yeah. Again, only at Burning Man. Like, yeah. Right. The culture of the camp would support that kind of playful behavior. Right. But I said, right. you know, we met 15 minutes ago. Yeah. And yeah. what makes you think that I want that or that that feels okay? Or, totally. And, and I watched the light dawn on him yeah. and he was like oh, oh my god yeah you're right <laughs> like wow you're right why what would make yeah. me think that why did i, I could think just smack your ass i should do that you know yeah, um, totally and it was it was a really um useful thing for me uh, because uh -huh. i think a younger me maybe would just unilaterally vilify men yeah. and just 
yeah. you know, you either get it or you don't. Totally. And, um, increasingly, I'm sort of stepping into yeah. what it means to be an ally, to have an ally, yeah. and to participate really proactively in yeah. this conversation about c- consent. And yeah. Um, yeah. And that most men are coming from a really good place just lacking the education and internalizing messages because you know we got into it and he's like really I just thought that would take the fun out of it if I asked and that women like want you to be really for sure so it gets into a whole lot of oh yeah there's so much there there's so much there I was talking my my partner who's a man we were talking about the verbal consent standard and he was saying you know it's it's confusing for me though that you say that this is like a standard that is violated so often and yet it's still a standard you know, he was like, if we're not able to uphold it, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. wh- how is this happening? Like, he was just trying to wrap his head around the fact that the idea that something that's so pedestrian mm. could actually be wrong. You know, that that we're, that our violations of consent are so common. I see. And that that is wrong. Like, that is the standard? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, so like he, the yeah. status quo exactly. is something that. He was saying, you know, when I think of standard, I think of what's practiced. Right. Right? right. So he was like, you're telling me that, that, that what's practiced is actually against the law, you know? Right. And it is. Or just ethically. Well, and s- ethically. So is using straws. Yes. <laughs> right. right. Like we're watching yeah. right now yeah. so much behavior yeah. that is just normalized. And totally unethical if you really, if you really drill it down. Right. right? So I thought that was interesting. Like it was, uh, I, I appreciated his honesty in saying that. Like he was like, you know, I, I, I hear everything you're saying and it does make sense, but honestly, my whole life I've seen this standard being violated. And so it's like hard for me to get my head around that, mm. you know, mm-hmm. um, that that was always, you know, so harmful. And I'm mm. like, yeah. Right. Like he was like, I thought I would have seen that harm. I would have known. Yeah. You, I, you know? know that I, I'm also having a lot of conversations with men right yeah. now where that, and, and it's something I'm seeing some people have a lot of trouble with too mm-hmm. because then it causes you to reflect on your own behavior and a lot of questions again a lot of people think most men are good guys and think of themselves totally. as good guys and, and think of all of this harm and sexual assault as being somebody else like yeah. you know yeah. the Weinsteins of the world that's totally. what we're talking about yeah and then I have had some some yeah truth and reconciliation conversations mm-hmm. with former partners to say well actually yeah and it's all very subtle, you know, and they, yeah. Yeah. when they start to understand what is considered an infraction mm-hmm. on a very small and energetic level, there is a bit of like a looking inward. And yeah. Which can be super upsetting. So upsetting. And so yeah. then the question becomes, you know, how can we keep having these conversations in a really yeah, yeah, yeah. healthy, supportive way totally. that allows for the total yeah. candor, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and also has space for that reckoning, but, um, Ultimately, it's it's us looking at how we are all part of this larger system, totally. and in the same way that I'm not going to shame my 22 year old self for not mm-hmm. knowing how to set her boundaries or ask for what she wants. Similarly, yeah. you could say the same for do you yeah. shame the 22 year old guy who yeah. was yeah. indoctrinated into a culture that yeah. condoned a certain kind of totally behavior and engagement and conditioned to that being normal? Mm. Yeah, I, I I think that that's the most challenging thing right now is actually helping people understand, uh, helping us all understand our participation in a system that causes a lot of harm mm-hmm. and that it's not, um, it's not simple and it's not easy to unlearn. Which is another um, corollary to yeah. the environment right now. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to unlearn that shit, it's going to be some work. And the reckoning. 
what are the ways in which I'm totally and then how am I accountable to that and like all of it's very um yeah I I can see why a lot of people don't want to have the conversation Mm -hmm. you know um but I think that our best bet as a movement is to show that like on the other side of that conversation and throughout that conversation you you learn and you grow and you feel better right (laughs) right um but that's not often what we're shown right right yeah it takes humility yeah compassion forgiveness yeah and um as most things a a, a quieting of the ego yeah an overcoming or putting aside yeah totally so how did you go into get into social work so i was kind of by that time i was like in my late 20s and i had been doing all this like fun i I was lucky i got to do lots of cool interesting shit Mm -hmm. um you know i was doing sex ed work sex ed activism i was also working with newcomers migrants and uh did a little bit of work in like kind of political and civil rights education i did lots of cool shit but i was like and I had worked as a counselor. I did all this great shit, but I was like, I was so broke <laughs> because everything I was doing was always like precarious, part-time, side gig, hustle. And I got really good at it, but I was just, I was starting to get really tired. And I was like, okay, how can I get myself into a situation where I can support myself while doing all this? And the answer, unfortunately, um, I would say, (laughs) was I had to find some way to professionalize myself. And I really struggled with it because professionalization has a lot of uh, stuff that goes along with it, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, And so I had to find the right body that I felt I could be a part of. Mm -hmm. Um, And I chose social work because it's a pretty solid code of ethics, which I basically agree with. It's about non-discrimination and like maximizing human potential and supporting your clients. And so I was like, okay, I think I can do that. Um, And I can become a social worker and I can still do all the things I'm doing. Um, And so far that has been the case. So that's been really good. Yeah. So then I went to social work school, which was like funny because I had to go to university again. And I was like, this is a bummer, (laughs) but I did it and that was fine. Uh, And through that I worked as I was doing that, I worked at an LGBTQ community center. That was really great. Mostly working in the support of queer refugees, queer identified refugees, and also trans young people who were trying to get into the workforce. Mm. So we got to do these like very niche programs. We were really supporting people who were experiencing a lot of violence and a lot of harm. So that was really cool. And then I worked in the school board. Um, that was a fantastic education in big institutions and how they work. And then I popped out and I was a social worker and hey, presto, <laughs> it happened. Like an easy bake. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think about it now and I'm like, yeah, it was a good, it was a good call, you know, like, um, yeah, it was useful for me. Mm-hmm. And you so know? what is the work that you're currently doing? So now what I do, I have a really exciting mix of things I do. I love it. I work part-time. Uh, so I work for myself. I'm a kind of consultant and uh, educator and, and therapist in private practice. About half of my work is with individuals and couples as a trauma therapist. I love that work. It's fantastic. And I do mostly body-based psychotherapy. So uh, training in somatic experiencing. And I also offer EMDR and a few other trauma resolution modalities. I love that work. It's great. And then the other half of what I do is I work with organizations, businesses, um, companies, nonprofits who are interested in doing proactive 
effective ethical work around the issue of sexual harassment in the workforce. Um, so I'm really lucky. I get to do really cool stuff in that area too. Um, I get to help organizations that are really authentically progressive and forward thinking. Um, and they're interested in putting stuff in place that is, is just going to keep their workforce well mm. and, you know, safe and, uh, building organizations and companies that women and gender minorities can thrive in, mm. um, where we're really dealing with these, uh, not just the glass ceiling, but what we call the leaky pipeline. <laughs> it's the stuff that pushes women out, uh, as they are making inroads, um, so I'm super privileged to do that work. It's fascinating. I love it. What are some of the protocol that you help companies put in place? What are some mm -hmm. of the questions that companies are navigating? Yeah. Oh my, there's so much. So I'm actually going to be writing a book about it. So I'll let you know when that's come out because that's like in much more detail. But um, there's a chunk of work I'm doing, which is uh, organizations that are trying to put in place restorative and reparative uh, and healthy approaches to all kinds of relational contract conflict. So basically, instead of necessarily assuming we're going to go through an investigation and we're going to punish, giving a person who has experienced harassment a choice about what they want, right? And they may say, I want an investigation and I want, you know, uh, serious consequences and that's totally fine. But often that's a barrier for people coming forward. They don't necessarily want someone to lose right. a job. <laughs> Sometimes they just want someone to like, Learn that's like shitty behavior and apologize. They don't always want. So sometimes the law comes down hard on a certain direction that actually can be very harmful for women coming forward. So I'm, I'm working with a couple of organizations right now. I'm just like, how do you open that up a little bit and say, we don't necessarily have to go nuclear and use these ideas that come from the legal system, which is like, as we all know, garbage on violence against women. Mm -hmm. We can use we can use restorative approaches. We can use other approaches that are more focused on the well-being of the person who was targeted um, and less on the, you know, company's liability or uh, or what have you. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's a super interesting area of practice. I have a lot of respect for organizations that are working on that. Um, I think it's a, I think it's super exciting. Um and then I also help organizations build independent third parties, so ethics committees and things like that, where they want to have some external review on their internal process because they understand that with these complex conversations, it's pretty hard to be neutral, right? If you're the owner of the company and the only the people who work for you have worked for you for 10 years, you're not in the best position to make the decision, Right. And what do you find tends to motivate a company? Like you were saying that they just mm -hmm. tend to be really progressive companies yeah. for the most part or. Yeah. Good leadership. Uh -huh. Smart people at the top mm -hmm. and throughout, but particularly at the top who understand it's called, what's it called? It's called the Al Capone effect. Basically sexual harassment tends to thrive in companies where there's other problems, mm -hmm. right? Um, fraud other kinds of misconduct, other kinds of issues. Right. Which you would understand, right? Like you're like, oh, that makes total How's sense. How's your ethical code? How's your, yeah, <laughs> exactly, right? And so I think smart leadership understand like getting a handle on this, A, it's going to help you attract and retain female talent, which in some sectors is like 
really important tech, mm -hmm. for example, where like you want to have more gender diversity, you got to make it a safe place for your women coders because they've got other options, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is great. So definitely, yeah, just forward thinking leadership who understand that this is like really important and they just don't want to waste time and energy um, cultivating a culture that doesn't help people, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, and luckily there's a lot of, there's a lot of great leadership around, you know? Um, I would say that's the number one thing. Mm, fantastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned when we were chatting earlier, a couple things that I want to make sure we touch on. Mm -hmm. So one was the desire workshop that you oh, have yeah. taught. That was cool. I yeah. would love for you to share what yeah. that is. So uh, last year in the spring, my colleague and I, so my colleague Prapti, who's a great therapist, um, she was doing a lot of work on sex in her practice. Like she was just working a lot with survivors of trauma, sexual trauma. And um, so she approached me and she said, could we do a thing? Could we do a workshop on just like helping people get kind of closer and more comfortable to wanting? Um, and I thought, God, that's a great idea. So we developed this series called the Desire Series. It was a three-part workshop for women and feminine of center people. Um, and it was basically all about, it was somatic. So what that means is like it was experiential. It wasn't just conceptual. What we were practicing in the workshop was how do we actually feel our way into these things? Because um, most, most people would say, oh, I think I should be okay with wanting. <laughs> but that's one thing to say it, it's another thing to feel it. Mm -hmm. So our goal was how do we help participants get a little closer to feeling okay with wanting, you know? So we did this really cool series and we worked on basically how do you, how do you realize what it is you want? How do you notice it in your body? What does it feel like when you want? What gets in the way? And then how do you make it stronger so you can follow it? Mm -hmm. Um and one of the coolest things that came out of that for me was I learned a lot about how we, uh, as women and female socialized people, we are taught at a very early age to cut our wanting off because it's a bit dangerous <laughs> or it's unladylike or, or it's straight up dangerous, um, depending on where you were and what was going on. Mm -hmm. So we were working on how is it that you can feel entitled to pleasure, not necessarily pleasure with someone else, but like in your own body. Like it's yours. It's a renewable resource belongs to you and you deserve that. And it was fascinating to me how hard it was for people to feel that. Well, it's an interesting thing to reflect on if you didn't grow up in a particularly yeah. oppressive culture or mm -hmm. conservative family, because then that sort of socialization is much subtler, totally. right? Like, I don't know that I could point to an acute moment or acute trauma, but I know that that socialization is there. Yes. Right. Yes. And so I'm curious, yeah. Um, yeah, what, what the conversation was and what sort of how can you speak about this socialization, particularly yeah. when it's on this subtle level? It's so subtle. Yeah. And I don't know how necessary it is to have a specific story too. Like sometimes people have specific memories, like, you know, the nun at Catholic school or whatever, like people have specific memories. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes it's like, it's in the water. And so it's also in us. That means it's in our bloodstream. It's not just in the water, you know, it's in us. Um, so the way we approached it was we tried to look at, okay, so when you're hungry or you're thirsty, you feel that, you recognize that. And then, um, 
assuming that you feel comfortable eating and drinking, which I recognize is a big assumption, you then choose to go for the water or you choose to get some food and you feel okay about that, right? So uh, again, I know I'm making assumptions here and so this might not be a very good metaphor. Another option would be you're cold and you go get a blanket, right? So there's sort of these automatic kind of pathways that we learn. It's okay for me to act on this feeling. Um, which we classify as a need. Which we classify as a need, right? And we don't think we're making it bad for anyone if we put a sweater on, mm-hmm. right? We're not worried about that. But I think for most of us, access to pleasure, we don't classify it as a need and we put a lot of things in the way. So we were working with the participants and ourselves to say, what would it be like if when I wanted something, it was just like getting a glass of water and I just assume it's there for me, Right. Um, which I do because I I live in a part of the world where I have access to clean drinking water. And I do take that for granted, right? So it was like, what would it be like to take pleasure for granted, to just be like, yeah, that's mine and I can turn that tap on and it's okay and I will drink as much as I need and then it will be done, right? Um, And pleasure you're using in a sexual context or as a broader context? We were talking about it broadly, but specifically erotic pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, specifically like pleasures that we are kind of, that's that we're taught are not so simple, mm-hmm. right? So that was fascinating looking at what's it like to feel entitled to pleasure. And we had a big, um, big conversation about entitlement as a concept mm-hmm. because it certainly for a lot of people felt like um, that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. If you're entitled to pleasure, you become a rapist. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where we kind of eventually went was that was the fear, right? Um, that interjected fear of taking, you know? So I thought, oh, that's an important thing to talk about with women. Right, because so many of us have experienced mm-hmm. entitlement. Yeah, to in pleasure. such a terrible way, right? right? Yeah, that our bodies have, have know what it's like to be the natural resource, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but is there another way? You know, is there a way that we can be entitled but also respectful of other people's boundaries? What is the way? Yeah. I mean, I think it's about, oh, gosh, so many things. Mm. I do think a part of it is learning to recognize wanting and learning to own it. Mm. Because I don't know if this is something you've seen, but something I have seen is that one thing that's very common, and I think it has to do with sex and activity and stigma, Sometimes we get really turned on and we we get into an altered state and we think other people want what we want. Mm. I don't know if you've seen that in your practice. And I think it's because we haven't really learned to own what we want, right? So you can be super turned on. You still need to be able to hear no, right? And I think that's a, that's a thing that a lot of us are afraid of. If right. I become too big erotically, energetically, what if I take, Right. And I think it's about learning to trust, like, no, you can still hear, no, you can still respond, you can still get your needs by yourself. Right. So I think it's about practicing expanding what you're letting yourself want, let your wanting get big, Mm. follow it, and learn to also listen Mm. when the answer is no. It's huge. It's everything, right? I mean, it's for consent and for desire. Totally. Right? So that... And I think it, it it will lead to a more liberated um, mm-hmm. populace if um, 
because part of what makes consent so awkward is both having to give no yeah and having totally, to receive it totally right and yeah. if that were something that were just super normalized yeah. as an impersonal if we all got more comfortable hearing it and oh, giving it so much we get to ask for more yeah <laughs> yeah for sure one of my amazing colleagues BK Chan uh her work is a lot about excuse me rejection resilience mm. um and it's just all about being like, oh, that's shitty. I feel bad. Okay. <laughs> and just like, it's going to feel bad initially. And then you're going to get used to it. And you'll be like, oh, everyone gets rejected. Yeah. It's normal. Is it in life. the context of consent? Such yeah. Work is? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. Amazing. I can connect you to her. She's awesome. Rad, yeah. rad person. Um, just going back to the the drinking water, the drinking yeah. the Kool-Aid of. Yeah. Kool-Aid of the patriarchy, so yeah, I like to call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, can you, can you um, identify what some of those factors, subtle yeah. factors are? Yeah. Like what helps us feel entitled and what gets in the way? Yeah. Or what, so again, if, if I'm like, I, I know that socialization happened, yeah. but I can't pinpoint what it was or yeah. why. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, I would, I would start with self-compassion and self-love uh, of just being like, I know that socialization happened. I know it's still happening and I forgive myself for it. I guess I'm asking you though, like what form did that socialization take for oh, many of us? Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Mm. Um, so in my life, I think I, I think I was taught implicitly at a young age, schooling was a big part of this, mm -hmm. um, to don't touch your own body. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a big one. Kids self-soothe through touch all the time, right? Um, I think I was taught pretty young that wasn't appropriate or certain kinds of touch weren't appropriate. Um, so I think I learned that. And that cuts off mm -hmm. um, a pretty important sensory highway. Mm -hmm. So even though that has nothing to do with any adult trying to harm your sexual life later, um, you know, every, every teacher, caregiver, adult who says, don't touch yourself that way, or, um, you know, that's not appropriate is teaching you to not follow desire. Right. Right. So it doesn't have to be anything malicious. Um, and then I think also a lot of things that happen are, uh, you follow your desire into a sexual situation and then it takes a bad turn. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot, right? And then there's a lot of self-blaming that we mm. do of like, I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have kissed them. I shouldn't have done this. And all of that is bullshit, but it's very easy to penalize yourself or it's easier, I should say, to say, um, you know, I, I, I was bad because I followed my desire and we, right. we learned that. I brought this on. Yeah. Yeah. I should have. Right. You become fearful of your own desire. Yeah. And you think that was the problem. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas in reality, that's like actually not the issue. Mm -hmm. Right. Your desire wasn't, it wasn't about your desire. And that's the shitty part. Like it actually wasn't about what you want at all. Yeah. Right. And that's very painful. So I think that's a more explicit kind of conditioning. Yeah, I think being empowered by desire is a really important and mm -hmm. um, fascinating 
phase of evolution ahead of us. Totally. You know, it's something that I started to reflect on over the last few years, which is yeah. when if I desired something, I would very quickly feel disempowered by that desire. Yeah. Because it created a sense of lack uh-huh. or longing uh-huh. or it gave my yeah. power to the person who held the, the keys, whether it was, you know, right. somebody I liked or it was career related. Totally. Yeah. And I've been really thinking about how to yeah. come from a place of power and when celebrate desire mm-hmm. yeah and still mm-hmm. feel full yeah right I can see that that can to- that makes sense for sure like you can feel unstable in your wanting mm-hmm. right yeah absolutely and it can make you vulnerable mm-hmm. like because sometimes the answer is no and then you're like okay <laughs> gotta find something else totally you know <laughs> like- a useful reframe though is you know in post-Dowism the school mm-hmm. that I'm here in Santa Fe at um, desire is so connected to destiny, right? Mm-hmm. Desire is mm-hmm. is the blueprint for our destiny in a way. Right. Um, yeah. As I think in Nichiren and Buddhism, it's the same thing. Yeah. Where I think a lot of Eastern religion, we think of Buddhism as negating desire yeah. and saying, yeah. oh, it's like craving, but desire and craving are two different things, mm-hmm. right? Desire is something that comes from deep within and is the guiding light that can bring you it's no different than joseph campbell saying follow your bliss right right for which you need to be not afraid of your bliss totally (laughs) or less afraid of your bliss yeah and i think in that context it's a useful reframe to say "Ooh, this desire is actually like if i can identify that desire i feel Mm. more empowered because Mm -hmm. i feel more embodied self-actualized even in just knowing what my North star is. I can follow it. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think what you say about like learning to, so in, in somatics, we use this idea of like, as much as we're working on the trauma and we are, and I think all of us in this culture have sexual trauma. I don't, I don't just mean mm. traumatic incidents. Mm-hmm. We're also working on the impulse to heal, which is created at the same time as any trauma. And so we're flipping between those two things and that's how we heal. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, for sure, looking at the conditioning that hurt us, but also looking at the desire and the following the North Star, mm-hmm. you know? Well, what you just said, I agree with. And I think also some could hear it as a a big statement, like mm-hmm. everyone in this culture had some fun yeah. with sexual trauma. So yeah. how do you totally. um, unpack that a little bit so that we can... Yeah. I don't mean to say all trauma is the same because it's course. not. Um, and definitely there are people who experience very harmful things. And I do not mean to say that's all the same. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I also think that um, our culture teaches us sex. Sex is learned behavior right? It's like language. It's like movement. Um, we, we learn it from each other and we also learn it from the culture around us. And I think there's, there's, uh, unfortunately so much violence in the culture around us and in ourselves, um, that, uh, I think we, we pick up on that in our sex and sometimes it's very subtle. It's just like we learned a lot of silence or we learned a lot of holding our breath Mm. or we learned a lot of, um, fear and avoidance. Sometimes it's much more explicit. Um, but I, I have yet to work with a person like as a, as a client, as a colleague, uh, as a peer, I I've never had a lover. I've, I've who, who does not have some form of trauma from the culture around mm-hmm. sex. Mm-hmm. So maybe if someone's out there, I, I shouldn't be too you know, extreme. Call us. Call I us. I interview you. <laughs> because I just, yeah, like I just totally. think with everything that's happened and is happening, like 
um, I, I think I think we all suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that is liberating to think about, to be like, oh, this is trauma and that's part of why I'm all fucked up about it. Totally. You know, it's not just like, I'm all fucked up. It's like, no, we're, we are all fucked up. I'm drink- you know? all drinking the water. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll just end with mm-hmm. asking you, um, again, for that, that ballsy 16 year old who might be listening yeah. or the 68 year old who's still discovering her her sexual body yeah um you know you mentioned this time in your late 20s when you started to maybe unlearn shame and feel more safe in your body yeah so then what how did that start to manifest Mm -hmm. in what ways did you actually were you able to Mm -hmm. bring your sexuality to the next level and what what can you share what would you like to share about that journey I once I felt safe and once I felt secure in my boundaries and able to say no and, and to trust that my body would tell me, mm-hmm. um, then I was just able to have like a wonderful slutty time, you know? <laughs> and I, I, I just like, I, I didn't have the confidence to do that. Not so much like not thinking I wasn't hot. It was like, I just didn't have the confidence in myself to know that I would, I would take, take care, care of Take care of yourself. I yeah. just didn't think Absolutely. I would. I just didn't, I wasn't sure. You know, absolutely. so I would say whatever you can do to give yourself that confidence in yourself, I will take care of me. Mm-hmm. And that might be sexual, it might not be. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the number one thing. Like, just show yourself you've got your own back. Mm-hmm. And that is like the thing. And then um, follow what feels good and just trust that you'll know. Uh, and if you get hurt, that's OK. You can heal, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, it doesn't have to be. You can get your heart broken. You can, like, the, the, it's okay, you know? Um, it can be painful. It can be you painful. Can yeah. Totally. Yeah. You can try sex that you thought you would like, and you were like, man, that was a right. consensual disaster. That happens, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> where you're just like, wow, well, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that was very awkward, <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, and all of that's okay, but I think the most important thing is just knowing that you have your own back. Yeah. I think that's um, so, so wise. Um and worth just naming because yeah. that's that's something that we don't um maybe isn't emphasized as much totally right so now there's all this scrutiny about consent and yeah. how to go and so we can like totally bring the perpetrator under file but <laughs> that sure. shame that the women that uh, anyone yeah. yeah um always feels this sense of and the society telling you that you brought it on or like you were saying totally. it's especially in those subtle cases yeah where yeah. Yeah. you followed your desire into a trap or you found Something. yourself frozen and silent sure. without yeah and then you're angry at yourself and then you're just kill, kicking yourself because the person you're with didn't do anything wrong actually yeah. like yeah. no one was shutting you up and that something happened and you couldn't speak right? right yeah totally yeah and I don't think I understood I think if if someone had said that to me when I was a teenager that the most important thing is that you have your own back I would have been like huh what because mm. I thought about sex as happening with someone else like in another in a space between two bodies right. or more and so I just didn't think that it was that important for me to know that I was going to be, I don't know. Right. Well, it's know? a weird rupture. Um, yeah. On the one hand, all of the shaming and stigmatization around sex and particularly women's bodies yeah. that then kind of robs you of agency and totally. responsibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then also still says it's your responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> 
right? Yes. Like I, it's your job and you can never do it well. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So um, totally. Yeah. That that kind of reclaiming and and whatever whatever that means, whether that means having a slutty time or being yeah. super celibate for a minute or like going great. out having a slutty time and practicing your no totally. aggressively. <laughs> I had a great time for almost a year where I just made out with people. Mm. I just didn't want to have penetrative sex with anyone until I did. But then then I changed it. But like I for a good year, I had a really good time just making out with people mm-hmm. and it, I loved it. I learned so much. And how at what point did you set the boundary? My so my my move was always like I just was like I was super direct so I was always like do you want to go make out in the alleyway, and usually people would be like yeah yeah great yeah always an alleyway, almost always an okay. alleyway because I Toronto has a lot of alleyways and so you'd be like in a bar or whatever and there's an alleyway. Um, we'll return to that setting for our first collaborative. Yeah, film. Totally. <laughs> the alleyway move was like, it was just so great. It's classy. It's, it was highly, it was highly successful. And usually I would just say to the person, like, I really want to make out. I don't think I'm going to want to do more than that. And I'll let you know if that changes, but I was pretty like yeah. straight up. Yeah. Um, and I also felt very confident physically in myself at that time that if anyone pushed me in any way that I could I could push back Mm -hmm. so that was also really important like I felt very verbally in control of the situation and then I also felt physically controlled or able to control and so that made it possible to do that like strong yeah I felt strong I was doing a lot of Pilates and a lot of dance and like Mm -hmm. I just felt strong Mm -hmm. you know um and so yeah that was really cool for me yeah it was really worth doing yeah, again, mm-hmm. it it highlights the intersection of all of these realms of our lives that we think of as separate. Yeah, you know, but yeah. feeling energized and strong in your body yeah. helps you enforce your no. Totally, um, desire helps yeah. you go after, energizes you to go work out. Totally, like, and then I also learned a lot about what it feels like because I would I'd be like, oh, I really like that kiss. I didn't like that one, and that was really cool. Like mm-hmm. I would learn like what what really lights my body up and how to follow that, mm-hmm. as opposed to oh, I, I kissing the person, so I should keep kissing the person, and then I should go to this next, and then that, and then right. so it, it helped me train a lot. Of thought is yeah. to just slow that down. So I would recommend that Mm -hmm. to anyone who is interested. Well, thank you so much. It was such (laughs) a, what a wonderful conversation to have with you. This is a, thank um, you for having me. A lesson in talk to strangers. Yeah. Especially in airports. Especially in the airports. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And so you're based in Toronto right now. I'm based in Toronto. And how can people find you, find your work? They want to work with you. um, Yeah, you can Google me. My name is Meg Saxby, Um, S-A-X-B-Y. I'm a social worker. So you might find my, my therapeutic social work website. Um, and you might also find my work with organizations, which is under the name Sea Change, S-E-A hyphen C-H-A-N-G-E dot C-A. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much. And Thank I hope you. you. Have a beautiful rest of your time <laughs> in New Mexico. Yeah. Cheers. If this episode turned you on, please subscribe, rate, and review us. It makes a huge difference. Then head to strippersandsages.com to learn more about our guests, sign up for our mailing list, access special resources, and become a Patreon supporter, which would be very sexy of you. Special thanks to Ben Euphrat for scoring and mixing these episodes, and to Lilia Tam and John Wolfstone for their production support. Stay sexy, folks. <laughs>